I was a Peace Corps volunteer a long time ago, and there was a, a poster that was in our, our office. And it, it was basically one of the Peace Corps mottos is, if I hear, I forget. If I see, I understand. If I do, I can do, or something like that. Right. So the idea really is that the kids ask the kids to do it themselves, ask the kids to discover it for themselves. And that that ability to discover never goes away. Welcome to the Get More Math podcast, where we support teachers in their quest for long term student gains. This is a podcast for teachers to share their passion for math education, learn best practices from experts in the field and swap ideas for student success. This is community. This is Get More Math. Hello, this is Josh with the Get More Math podcast. My guest today is Jay Meadows. He's a veteran classroom teacher, and right now he's the chief education officer of Exemplars. I had a conversation with Jay one time in which he said something that absolutely stunned me. I've never forgotten it. It's a short sentence. It's a, it's a massive and powerful sentence. And I've been craving for an opportunity to unpack it and understand it. And that's what this podcast is all about. Here's my conversation with Jay. So Jay, I, I want to start with something you said once to me that totally intrigued me. And I've always wanted the chance to explore it further. So thanks for joining today and, and giving me an opportunity. Thanks for having me, Josh. This is exciting. You're welcome. Uh, we talked a little before the show about this, this powerful statement, this intriguing stunning short sentence. Uh, I wonder if you could just say it on the mic. I want to capture it on the recording. So you and I got to spend several days together in Austin, Texas a couple of years ago. We sat next to each other at a conference and we chatted for hours and hours about our philosophy in, in education. And, and I shared with you one of my big ideas in my classroom as, as a teacher, which I developed over the first couple of years. Um, and then I began to just make this my philosophy. And I would, I would say it at the very first day of class. And I would tell my kids, the one thing that I will never give them in my classroom is an answer. And so for the last eight years of my teaching, I held to that philosophy. And I even promised my kids uh, five minutes of recess for every uh, answer that I gave them during the course of the year. In my last many years, I would say I averaged 15 minutes of recess in a year. And almost all of those were these Freudian, it kind of just came out of my mouth <laughs> answers, uh, totally unintentional. And my kids were like, Mr. Rose, that's five minutes. I was like, okay, okay, I promised. Great. Um, so that, that was just one of my foundational teaching ideas was just never give my students the answer. So I find that stunning and intriguing because, uh, all of the rest of us, and that's probably too broad, but most of the rest of us can't say we did that for eight years. We never gave our students the answer or occasionally we slipped up. So, you know, practically speaking, I have all these sort of, I don't know if they're curiosities or even objections, like, wait, how did you do that? Like, I don't even know quite where to start. Maybe, maybe we could start at maybe the easiest ask, like, what's, what's a, a a first step, somebody who's hearing you say this is like, wow, I, I give answers all day long. Um, what's the first step a person could take towards your philosophy? I think the first step is the philosophy. It's just that my commitment was to my kids 
that they were the ones in the classroom who were the thinkers. They were the ones who needed to be working cognitively during the class. I knew what the answer was. I walked up to the board. I already knew what the answer was. It was my goal that the students would be figuring out those answers. And in that first conversation of the year, I would also ask them, so if I'm not going to give you the answer, where's it going to come from? And the kids quickly realized they were going to give the answers. Making that foundational for me, my responsibility became designing the right questions, really figuring out that zone of proximal development, right? What question am I going to ask today that pushes us towards our learning goal, towards that content knowledge that I wanted them to have? What do I ask today? And then letting the kids work together, letting them use their manipulatives, use their representations, using their prior knowledge, they would come to a conclusion. They would find an answer for that. And then I would engage in, in that rich discourse, right? I would, I would know what I was looking for. And if a student was, was doing it that way, I made note of that to myself. But I would oftentimes look for that student who was using sort of an early entry strategy to solve the problem, because I wanted everyone to see that, right? Could we, could we introduce maybe, let's just, I, I did a lot of division of fractions in sixth grade. That's where we lived a lot of times. So you would pose the question, the kids would use their representations. I would ask a kid to, to come to the board, put it under the Elmo and show their, their thinking. I would bring up the next student who used something a little bit more sophisticated and we would, we would look at it, we would talk about it, we would unpack it, and we'd try to make some connections between the two strategies. Then that third strategy, I would bring up, and again, we would look at it and unpack it. And at the same time, I'm writing them all on the board, on, mm -hmm. on, the, on my whiteboard, so mm -hmm. that when all three strategies have been shown, we can now go back and sort of unpack. And the kids start to see patterns, and the kids begin to sort of make sort of aha moments. And oftentimes, I would write the difference division of fraction uh, equations and quotients that we that we had calculated for over the course of probably like two or three days. And I'd ask the kids, do you see any patterns in here? And the kids would kind of come up with these ideas of, well, Mr. Meadows, if you, you, you bounce from the numerator in the first to the denominator in the second and you multiply them, you get the numerator of the, of the answer. And the quotient of the, or the denominator of the first and the numerator of the second, you get the, the denominator of the, Quotient. I'm probably getting all those confused. And they would see the patterns for themselves. And I, and they'd be, does that work every time, Mr. Mills? I'm like, I don't know. Let's let's investigate. Let's see if if we can do it another one. So I'd pose another problem, and they'd use their representations and they'd do their uh, equations, you know, with their abstract reasoning. And Mr. Meadows, it gives me the right answer. I get the same answer. Yeah. And so over the course of the week, the kids would discover for themselves the algorithm that I was hoping for them to learn. And so it really is about posing the right questions, allowing for that discourse, allowing for that discovery, allowing for the, the patterns to be recognized. And what I, what I discovered early was the kids really leaned into that strategy. It was, it was usually around mid-October that kids would lean in and be like, that man is not fooling. He is seriously not giving us an answer. I would go two days with one question and not give the answer. But the kids recognize they're really going to be the ones working. They're going to be the ones thinking. And that to get that kid who would come to the board after three or four days of working on a particular math concept 
and be like, Mr. Meadows, I think I've got it. I got it. And they put it up there and they show the algorithm and the kids are all nodding like, yeah, that works. It, it really puts, it creates a real excitement in the kids and it's truly engaging. You know, that's one of our goals in math class is to make it engaging. And one of my philosophies was that kids were not engaged by me entertaining them for only so long. Hmm. Kids were not engaged by me just telling them, you do it like this, we're going to do it 50 times and, and see if you get the right answer. That didn't work for them. But this ownership of the learning being theirs, of the responsibility of understanding something being theirs, that, that worked for them. And what I, what I also discovered is that kids began to really lean into their manipulatives. They would lean into those representations. They would lean in. I'd hear kids talking about the patterns that they were seeing. Like, hey, I wonder if this works. And so it became, it became sort of this, this contest to be the one to figure things out. And so over the course of, of the year, the learning got richer and richer and we'd get faster and faster at it because the kids would, would be, be trained and, and recognizing that they were going to, they were going to find the algorithm for us. So I found it very effective over the course of a year. I have a boatload of questions that have sprung up while you're talking, uh, but I think I'm going to go first to one of my favorite sentences. And uh, it's one of my favorites. I'm going to share it with you on this show and, all of you listening, uh, you can decide what you think of it. But I like to say that math teaching is uh, it's brain surgery, right? You're trying to actually alter mm -hmm. somebody else's brain. Mm -hmm. uh, however, no cutting is permitted. <laughs> so you, you, you can't get hands on, right? The brain is encased in this shell. You're trying to have something change in all of these brains. And I find it like almost mystical. Like, how am I going to do that? And oddly, our, our, uh, our first instinct is to try to shove information into the brain, sort of. Like, um, by manipulating, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I say it oddly, but like, by manipulating, like, molecules, sound waves, mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to, to hit their sensory inputs and have something change in their brain. And that's like the, the worst approach to education possible. And yet, it's, you know, it's, the, it's kind of the status quo. I'm going to say stuff because I'm the teacher. You're going to listen and something's going to change. The network in your brain is going to grow and connect better, if you will. I think there's two reasons teachers do that. I think the first reason is because we love our kids. We know what the answer is. I, I love you so much. I want you to know how to do this. I'm going to teach it to you. I'm going to give it to you. This is my gift to you as your teacher. The second thing is it's more efficient. We think it's, it saves us time. We've got an enormous amount of content to cover. I know how to do this. I'm going to teach you how to do this. We're going to cover this really fast and move on. But I don't think, and, and I love what you're saying about changing the brain, because that's literally what we do as teachers. But I don't think the, the, that traditional way of giving them the understanding is the most effective. You know, that second point um, on the, it being more efficient, uh, what's really sort of deceptive about that is it 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 doesn't just feel more efficient you could actually gather immediate data that shows that it's more efficient that's right you, know, uh, you deliver the steps for adding fractions and getting a common denominator or something and wow you just show them you know do this do this do this do this and within minutes they can add fractions uh they get the common denominator they add the fractions they reduce it and they have the answer and you know from all your years in education that that's it's it's worse than useless to teach math that way but if you're seeing immediate results like that and your goal was to get two kids to add fractions, it, 
it, it feels right at first. Um, at least for me, it, I remember, you know, it, it, in my beginning years of teaching, I would show kids steps or processes. Like I didn't have them discover them at all. I was just, I knew what they were already. So I delivered them and it wasn't just answers. It was what you're saying. It was algorithms because I was teaching algebra. So here's the slope formula. Let's use it, which it, I learned over time. That's, that was actually disastrous. Kids never understood what, what rate of change was because I never had them feel it out sort of. Well, let's think about the the end goal of the 12 years of mathematics teaching that we do with our kids. It's to it's to prepare them to enter the world and use mathematics to change the world, to understand the world, to quantify the world, to be successful in the world. When we give them the algorithms, they have this very short toolkit that they haven't really played with. It's, it's, maybe it's in there, but how do you transfer that into a new non-routine situation? When, when you organize your classroom where they are always doing the thinking, where they're always uh, responsible for the understanding, you pose a, a non-routine problem to them. They've been doing that all year. And so they approach it and they, they're, they're used to sort of thinking about it and they're going to draw their representations and they're going to play with things. By shaping your classroom around the discovery, around the inquiry process, I, th- I just think it, it, it prepares our students powerfully for, for being ready to use mathematics in the real world. So I'm trying to visualize what happens in a Jay Meadows classroom. Like, is there, is there a time where you're saying, here's five problems to add, add fractions? There's no words. There's no big problem to discover. It's just a little practice of a process that you guys have already uh, mastered? Sure. I think practice is, is a huge part of the math classroom. But for me, that comes later in the sequence of learning. Foundationally, for me, um, just before I became a teacher, one of my mentors gave me a book on student-centered learning by John Vandewall. And that really became sort of the foundational uh, philosophy for me. Posing those questions early, we we would work through and discover the algorithm. Once we had the algorithm, now we would practice it, right? We would would do a day of of just um, trying trying different problems, harder problems, we would also have a day of games where we were really playing with the concepts that we were learning and, um, and the kids would, would have contests and, and I would sit down and I would play the game and all oh, to be able to beat Mr. Meadows was the highlight of the year for these kids. Um, so practice is a huge part of it. It's just where in the sequence of the understanding does it happen? So in the practice setting, did you still not give them the answers? Correct. Yeah. The kids would come up. Um, and show the answers on the board. Um, they might, I would do it a variety of ways. They would either, can somebody do one, somebody do three, somebody do five, and they would come and show a couple of the problems. Um, sometimes I would just show the answers and they had to circle any they got incorrect and I could just kind of walk around and see how many circles were happening. And then they would be responsible for fixing. Um, another one of my ideas in my classroom is I never give grades. I would give only feedback. And I always allowed my kids to redo their tests. My philosophy is I wanted the kids to learn. If they got something wrong, that tells me they had more to learn. 
So by, by simply identifying this, this answer isn't the one I'm looking for. Can you go back and, and sort of think about your work and remember what we've done? And um, I would give them back their tests and they could, they could redo any questions that they got wrong. But, you know, the next time I would give the unit final, they had figured all that stuff out. And, and part of my philosophy was that those quizzes or those uh, formative assessments that I would get, if they could get to the unit final and nail it and get 100% on that unit final, those formative assessment grades for me were not really relevant. Yeah. Because that student today demonstrated at the end of the unit, I got this, Mr. Meadows. That to me, I wanted to celebrate. I wanted to, you know, maybe they got 70% all the way up, but they get to that unit final, like it's all come together for them. Do I now penalize them for that learning process when they've, when they've demonstrated superior mastery in the end of the process? To me, I was like, hey, we did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to celebrate that with them. So as we talk about like this, it, it sounds like you kind of almost have two strands. There's like a leading, the leading edge is kids exploring ideas and, and discovering key concepts and patterns. And you're facilitating that. I love what, what you said designing problems that address sort of proximal need, proximal development, enticing the kids, encouraging the kids, drawing the kids. And your job is, is not to tell them the process. It's your job is to get them to, to think about it, to be challenge them to explore it and discover it themselves. And then there's this other strand, which is let's also make sure there's an ongoing uh, aspect of rehearsal Let's, let's keep firing up those neural networks and building those, or well, maintaining those connections. I wanted to express to you, uh, I guess, one of the, the remaining frustrations for me as a teacher. So I taught for 20 years. I'm very satisfied with many of the things I discovered and, and the ways that I ended up working with kids. And, and I'm happy looking back at those 20 years. They were years for me of discovery and improvement. But one thing, I never resolved and I don't know if I ever could have was I also led with concept and I led with student discovery. We'd have these rich, wonderful um, processes, these developments. And then I don't know, two or three weeks later, the kids who would have kind of earned the algorithm, right? They owned it. They, they built it for them. Like the slope formula wasn't this like, thing from on high. It was a thing from their brains. We didn't even call it the slope formula. They just had figured out a way to find the rate of change. But anyway, two, three weeks later, I would find them just plugging in numbers and getting answers and not knowing what they meant. Mm -hmm. The same kid who could have written a paragraph on process, who had this rich discussion just a few weeks later. Now it's, it's, this is a little different than atrophy. Like she can find slope. But she's lost the the underlying beautiful thing that we built together, which is the, the reason it's fascinating to me is, isn't that how the brain works? I mean, that's the power of the brain. You and I are having this conversation and we're not having to think about the shape of the sounds and making meaning out of them. It's just happening, right? Like the brain is beautiful at making things more efficient, more condensed. And that's a good thing generally, but it was an interesting thing for me too. I kept having to kind of, find ways to shove kids back down into the concepts. At least we had those as touch points. Like, wait, you used to know what this was. You made this. But anyway, it was fascinating and a little frustrating to me to take a concepts first approach, 
and still at the end of the year not be satisfied. I mean, I was somewhat happy, but I wasn't fully satisfied with the degree to which their brains would have um, kind of boiled everything down into this tight set of, of algorithms and processes. Your story kind of adds evidence to to my philosophy in in the idea that if we if a student hears something, they're they're likely going to lose it. If somebody sees something, maybe they'll hold on to it. But if a student has discovered it for themselves, if the student has made sense of it when they arrived to that understanding completely on their own, that that process of discovery doesn't leave them. We can we can teach students to discover understanding, I think. And so that that slope formula that you're talking about, if I've discovered the strategy of making sense of, oh wait, this this linear line here, I can I can quantify that. Let's see if I have this this how far does it go on my x-axis and how far does it go on my y-axis? If I make sense of all of that for myself, when you put that problem in front of me months later, what I discovered is that student maintains that understanding of discovery. Mm. And they can go back, they can flash back to that, oh yeah, wait, I did this. I discovered this. So in I was a Peace Corps volunteer a long time ago and there was a, a poster um, that was in our, our office. And it, it was basically one of the Peace Corps mottos is, um, oh, I, I'm, I'm draining it and I'm losing it now, but something along the lines of, if I, uh, if I hear, I forget, if I see, I understand, if I do, I can do, or something like that, right? So the idea really is that the kids, ask the kids to do it themselves, mm-hmm. ask the kids to discover it for themselves, and that, that ability to discover never goes away. So I'm also curious about uh, the environment you found yourself in. I guess you're in Vermont. And is it correct to assume that you have maybe state math standards? We do, yep. So did you find yourself able to cover uh, the breadth of what Vermont's expectations were? Indeed. What I discovered was that the, the process at the beginning of the year was slower but one of the conversations our kids would always have is, uh, and I would ask them this, I mean, how many of you are lazy? And they'd all put up their hands. How many of you would like to, to figure out the fastest way to do these problems? And they'd all raise their hands. I was like, okay, we're, let's find the most efficient way to solve these kinds of problems. And so that, that search for the algorithm was on. Nice. And so over the course of the year, the kids would get faster and faster and faster at discovering collectively the algorithms. And so not only did the kids get better at it individually, but they got better at it collectively because they knew that the class was going to move on when, when most of the class was demonstrating understanding. So, so they, they would, um, over that course of the year, get faster and faster at it. And, and I was, it was interesting, usually around December, Around Christmas break, I would oftentimes be at recess with my other cohort of on grade level teachers, and I'd be a little bit behind them. Mm. But by April, I was right there with them, um, and I would I would finish as much of the curriculum as any of them would by the end of the year. That's great. I I taught algebra largely in Pennsylvania, and I think the standards for algebra in Pennsylvania um, 
are they're they're really rich, they're very broad, but I think that overall the only way you could really hit them all would be to um take a very processed first approach. I mean then you you would have quote covered them. <laughs> or I've heard the, the phrase like all your students would have been quote exposed to all of them. Um but when I when I put concepts first, I, I had to sort of deliberately cut maybe 20% of the standards just because, well, the, we, we were learning, I'm going to call it better. More, it was more meaningful. There was more lasting impact. Kids were learning to think and communicate mathematically. Uh, we weren't learning all the rules of exponents. <laughs> we just didn't have time for all of it. So that's it. You were able to do that. Let me add one more element to this conversation. When you're talking about the standards, a lot of a lot of our thinking in mathematics are the content standards, right? The Common Core laid out this sequence from K through eighth grade um, that you're supposed to learn this content every year. An equal element of this, and I consider it the other side of the coin, are the mathematical practices, what NCTM called the process standards. Mm-hmm. And those are those are different than the content standards, and in the sense that they're they're the mathematical behaviors, they're the mathematical mindsets that we develop in our students, and they're the mathematical practices. This idea of modeling, this idea of using representations, this idea of communicating about my thinking, proving my mathematical thinking, and, and we spend a lot of our time really really worried about covering the content. And I think part of that is driven by the end of the year tests that our states give, because one of the easiest ways in mathematics to give a test is to give arithmetic problems because they're right or wrong. A, a computer can quantify whether a student got the right or wrong answer to these questions quickly, right? Yeah. What's really challenging to quantify or to evaluate are these mathematical practices. How does a computer understand somebody's argument, right? How does somebody um, or a computer really evaluate someone's ability to persevere in solving a complex multi-step problem that might have multiple reasonable solutions? So they don't put those kinds of questions on the test. They're beginning to. There's one of these now or two of these. But when we look at what mathematics is in the world, when we listen to people like Conrad Wolfram, who's really out there sort of defining that mathematics involves these four steps, there's understanding the problem, there's mathematizing the problem, putting it into those computations that we can calculate. Then there's the stage of comp- computation, right? Need to, need to run the calculations. And then there's the idea of like interpreting my results, looking back as Polya told us to do. Which of those four stages can a computer do faster and more correctly than humans every time? It's the computate. It's the compute. Yet that's where we live in most of our math classrooms. We live in that computation world. Yet we're never going to be better than a computer. We're never going to be better than the phone in our pocket at those calculations. So I, th- I really believe we need to spend more time and give equal importance to these other elements of understanding problems, of, of learning how to model that problem mathematically, of then looking back and, and explaining my outcomes to an audience. Like, how do I 
how do I develop an evidence-based argument that, nope, the answer is 12 and I'm going to prove it to you. And I think that becomes incredibly important in our world today where evidence around ideas is not as important as who's yelling the loudest, right? We need a culture, I believe, that, that values evidence. So, so part of what I was trying to do in my classroom was shift from the content to these mathematical practices. And what I discovered is you can do both. You really can do both. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was lucky enough, I was talking with Sue O'Connell yesterday, and she, she shared with me this Venn diagram that she's developed. And it's the content on one side and it's the math practices on the other. And in the center is that is, is what mathematics is. It's the center of the practices and the content. So part of what I hope we can do moving forward is, is recognizing the need to do both and not just the, the, what's being driven by those end of the year tests. That's fascinating to me because then I, I'm, I'm just making this up in my mind, but they would students would arrive with four or five years worth of expectations of what math is. We would like to invite all of our listeners to visit our website at getmoremath.com, where you'll find helpful information about how Get More Math can help you transform the math education experience through targeted mastery and cyclical review. We welcome you to take advantage of our free trial for the 2021 school year. Find more information about the free trial at getmoremath.com. Now, back to the show. Did you ever find that students resisted uh, your approach, having started their kind of careers, if you will, as students with uh, a different approach? Uh, Yeah, occasionally. But it, it wasn't long before they really began to sort of appreciate being asked to think for themselves and being asked to, to be the, um, the sharer of information. Oftentimes kids that are really good at math found my philosophy a little strange at first because they liked calculating. They were really good at it. They were fast at it. They were accurate. Um, it was something that they were special at, at being able to do. And suddenly I was asking them to really think for themselves. Um, what I discovered with that group was, and, and, and I had this conversation with, with several of them over the years that they could get the right answer quickly. Great. Could you solve it another way for me? How might you show this with a representation? Well, Mr. Meadows, I, I just can do the math. I get it, but let's see it visually, right? Because eventually you're going to get to math you don't understand. And you're going to have this ability to sort of see with representations or manipulatives or drawings or diagrams, the thinking, and that's going to become really useful to you. And I I can't think of a kid who didn't lean in eventually to this idea of, of solving it multiple ways. I had kids go on to MIT, to Duke, to Harvard, um, and they were all, they were all engaged by this ability and willingness to sort of think for themselves. What kid, what middle school kid doesn't really want to be allowed to think for themselves and argue, right. For their position. Um, and I, and I actually would, would have a funny moment every year with the kids, um, where I would talk about how many of you want to win your arguments with your parents and all the hands would go up and I was like, okay, I'm going to give you one of the secrets to winning arguments and that's evidence. Can you, can you produce the evidence or find the evidence to support your position? 
Um, and we're going to do that mathematically. And so the kids would, would sort of lean in and wrap their heads around this idea of the value of showing their reasoning, sh- communicating their thinking. Um, so, yeah, they leaned in eventually. You, you just said a question you give the kids. How many of you like to win arguments? Like, I can just, I can just see all the kids being like, yes. Yep. And you said, how many of you are lazy? And I can just... <laughs> So now I'm curious, do you have like a, a list, like Meadows top 10 questions? Oh, like, gosh. Nope, never written that down, Josh, but that, that sounds like fun. I should well, try. I like the way you hook them. Um, those are, those are, those are, that's a fun, simple way to connect um, with these, these questions. I bet you have a bunch more that would just kind of come out. That pushback question, kind of somewhat from my own experience, I taught 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, sometimes, you know, since the age of five or six, um, they had, they'd experienced math one way, always as, as a process. Teacher tells me the process, I do the process, and I get a good grade. Like, it's very gratifying. You know, like the maybe the kid who is computationally strong um, adopts process very quickly, actually is, is, swims easily in the world of the abstract mm-hmm. without having to know or care where the abstractions came from can play by whatever the abstracted rules are. So, so I would teach these kids, uh, they would, they would take like advanced algebra with me. I didn't get a lot of advanced classes, but that's where sometimes I hit the greatest amount of pushback. I I agree with you. Eventually as kids would learn that they get to think and figure things out and explore that that was intoxicating to them. Like they're like, like I'm, I'm really, I, I like this. I like problem solving. I like discovering. I like being uh, at the helm, you know. Um, but it was interesting to me that it was it was the stronger kids who were lo- more likely to push back. Most of the kids I taught had not had much success in, say, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. They got to ninth grade, and boy, for them it was like fish to water, or, or it was like the invention of water. Like they. As long as I, it was all about calibration. As long as I calibrated carefully, you know, start with super simple stuff mm-hmm. that still they, it's just a little reach for them. Mm-hmm. Or even it's not a reach. Start with something that's just not a reach that they can figure out, think, you know, um, but they can figure it out. Like, oh, wow, I can, can build some understanding. And, and it was just, it was a beautiful thing. And I loved doing it. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to me how the, uh, to, to win kids over to another sort of approach to what happens in a math classroom was a tad easier, actually, with my kids who had a history of um, failure. Well, mm-hmm. I guess possibly simply because success itself is intoxicating. Mm-hmm. I was, um, one of the things my school did was we ran, um, we called them I blocks, which was in teacher speak, short for intervention blocks. But we, we, we looked at the entire sixth grade and we said, this block of kids is struggling in math. This block of kids is struggling in writing. This group of kids doing really well, but we should push them in different areas. And, and then we would take all the teachers of sixth grade and all of the other adults in the building from the librarians to the home ec teacher, and we would divide them up. And so for an hour, three times a, a week, we would get these kids and I'd get them for a semester. And oftentimes they weren't my kids and they would walk in and I'm like, okay, I've got this whole philosophy and never give them, them the answer. It takes weeks for me to develop this with my kids. How do I do this 
uh, on speed <laughs> at at speed with this new group of kids. And it it was it was often a little bumpy the first couple of days. But, but what I did, and I, and you kind of said to yourself, as I I would give them things, I I really felt that they could they could be successful with, and I would develop their confidence. And then I would get out all the manipulatives that I could find for whatever topics. And these kids were like sixth graders who couldn't subtract, mm-hmm. right? And we would get out all of these different things, and we'd we'd make number lines on the floor, and we'd draw pictures on the on the whiteboards, and um, and eventually they they really leaned in to this idea um that they could play their way to understanding mm. i didn't just they didn't just have to calculate for me that they could they could make discoveries right i remember i remember this number line and we were doing hops you know backwards and and several of the girls were like that's what subtraction is, Mr. Meadows. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, I'm, I've got 23 and here's 89, and I'm, I'm going to find the difference between these two. I'm like, what did you just say? Well, this is the difference. I'm like, that's a nice word. I wonder where that came from, you know. And and they would sort of discover this on their own, and um, and even for this kid, these kids in this short period of time, again, allowing them to discover suddenly yeah. their understanding. Um, it, it, yeah, even in the short term, I found it worked. Awesome. I, you could have just been like, well, I've got, I've got a shorter period of time. There's this huge gaps to fill. I better get cranking. And like you know, the first hour could have been like, here's all the rules for subtraction. And then the next hour you could have moved right to something else. Um, but like basically just perpetuated the problem because we get on to seventh grade and not know any of the stuff that you guys had gone over. I, I think it's beautiful. Actually. I love hearing your, your tale. Part of part of what I think happens with these kids when they get to ninth grade and they're they're struggling with math is because they've got these holes, and if the hole's big enough, it just prevents them from understanding huge parts of mathematics. I remember that cohort in particular. One of the reasons was because these girls, they were, we were doing division at the same at, in our regular classrooms. We were doing division, and these girls couldn't subtract, Ooh. and suddenly they knew how to subtract. And they came up to me at recess and be like, hey, Mr. Meadows, I figured out division. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it's just repeated subtraction. I figured it out. It's like, that's really cool. A month ago, these girls were just sitting there with their arms crossed, not trying division at all. Now yeah. that they understood what subtraction was, they were gung-ho into figuring out what this division thing was because they saw subtraction up on the board. They're like, hey, wait, I know what this is now. Yeah, yeah. It has to make sense. Those, all of those pieces in the toolkit. And that's one of the ways I think about mathematics is that it's a toolkit that we are helping kids develop. And one of the things we can do as teachers, because we love them, is we can just dump the tools into the toolbox and say, good luck, carry forward. Or we could say, you know, what tool might I use for this? And the kids could kind of develop a tool or pick a tool and say, this tool will work. And over time, kids begin to put those tools into their toolbox that they know how to use. And eventually, if we're giving them really cool problems, they're figuring out, oh, I'm going to use a combination of this tool and this tool and this tool to solve this particular problem. Mm-hmm. And now they're mathematicians, right? Now they're solving real problems themselves. So I think, I think part of it is in helping those kids who are struggling is figuring out where those holes are that we need to, to really slow down and go backwards in 
um, and, and complete their understanding for. And sometimes it's all the way back. It's all the way back. But for those groups of those kids that I worked with, you could just see all of the dominoes sort of fall like, oh, now this makes sense. This makes sense. This makes sense. And this makes sense. Subtraction of fractions suddenly made girl sense to these girls because wow. now they understood what subtraction was. Oh, they're finding a difference between three fourths and one half. Oh, okay. So it's just putting all of those pieces together, just or that one piece made all the other pieces kind of make sense for them. That's really powerful. And there's these other pieces that are operative there. Like, like you helped them tap something they didn't know existed inside themselves. You know, like their brain's capacity. They, they didn't believe it existed. You know, the whole like, I'm not good at math thing, which I'm sure as, as an t- educator, you've heard that many times and uh, is, is explosive. <laughs> there's no such thing as not good at math. Like that doesn't, it's, a, it's just a weird and bad idea to have in your head. But um. And Joe Bowler really helped us re- realize that, right? Like everybody can do math. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, you helped them, you know, eliminate that. And that block, that mental psychological block, when it's gone, I mean, kids can do so much more. That's right. uh, so that, I feel like that was probably happening too. Yes, they now understood subtraction, which itself is fundamental to division, but also they also understood themselves a little bit, you know, like, uh, I, I could just feel it. I could see how that would roll, and and I, I love it. Well, part of part of what I saw too, and and it's funny because I, I, the special educator and I did not necessarily see eye to eye all the time, because her her goal was to give kids that tool. These kids need to know how to subtract, and I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to show it to them. We're going to practice it. But in my mind, that had already been done. Those kids had already been shown how to subtract. And they didn't have it. They couldn't bring it forward. So we needed to, to engage in subtraction in a different way, in that math, math, mathematical concept in a different way, in a way that really slowed down. And it's hard to slow down. I'm in sixth grade and my kids can't subtract. How do I slow down for that? But unless we do, unless we find those opportunities to let them discover and, and build an understanding, they're going to be deficit forever because all of those holes are going to be perpetuated through all the concepts that they're going to encounter. One of the, one of the things that I've realized about teaching and teachers is that teaching is our art form. This is how we express ourselves creatively. And I love watching teachers engage in the exact same content or exact same problem, different from everybody else. Mm-hmm. because it's it, i i have my own class of kids i have my own strategies and philosophies that i have found work and and, and it's how i'm going to express myself so when i say i did this this is just me sure right? this is just how i how, how i discovered uh to engage kids successfully um there's a there's a million great ideas out there and that's that's one of the things that i love talking to teachers now all over the country is there's so many good ideas about how to do this. And, and talking to you, you have great ideas that I had never considered. I, I've been relying a lot lately on John Hattie's work, Invisible Learning, where he really went through thousands of studies of different pedagogical strategies and looked at the, the outcomes. What are the effect on, on learning? And there is evidence that some work better than others. So although... Although there's an art 
and we all want to express ourselves artistically, there are also some best practices that if we can expose teachers to and help them become aware of and see the power of them and the way they can use them in their classroom and still express them individually, I think, I think that's part of what we, what we do now in professional development is, is exposing them to some of these really good ideas that we know are effective. Well, I thank you, sir, for joining us on a July 3rd morning. Josh, it's a pleasure. Always, I always love getting to ch- chat with you. Thanks for listening to the Get More Math podcast. Drop us a comment and let us know what you thought about this episode. You can always connect with us at getmoremath.com. Have a great day.